regresar. And you're listening to CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Alice Bag with No Means No. Brand new from Alice Bag on Don Giovanni Records. Alice Bag with No Means No. Alice Bag from the bags. Today on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, an interview with Steve Albini. Steve Albini from Big Back, Slack, Chicago, and many other bands. Right An interview with Steve Albini. And to prepare you for Steve Albini, here are a couple bands that Steve Albini has produced. The first one is Pansy Division and their song Hockey Hair. Then we're going to go into Metal Urbane, an amazing tune that Steve loves. And in a couple tracks, Steve produced their reunion LP of The Mentally Ill, Geese's Place, Padded Cell, 
and Tumor Boy. And in an interview with Steve Albini from Chicago. So here from 1997 is a Steve Albini production from their 7-inch EP on Mint Records, Manada. Here is Pansy Division with Hockey Hair. And then... Metal Urbane from France, then The Mentally Ill, and then an interview with Steve Albini on the Narcbar to Human Serviette Radio Show. Yeah. 
Who are you? Uh, my name is Steve Albini. Steve, welcome to Austin, Texas. Right off the bat, Steve Albini, I want to ask you about the importance of this band right here, The Mentally Ill. The Mentally Ill were a unique and perverse punk band in Chicago. Well, actually in Deerfield, which is a suburb north of Chicago. Um, they were uh, a group of friends who played music and made one fantastic single and then later some other recordings. Um, they played no live concerts during their initial incarnation. And then many years later, they reformed and played a, a, a concert or two. Amazing guitar sound, isn't it? Yeah, brutal. One of the ugliest sounds ever on record, yeah. This, this record is a, a pivotal record in the sound of punk rock, in my opinion. And you recorded them recently, some weird stuff they wanted recorded. Uh, I recorded them on their reunion phase. I recorded them, uh, I want to say five, maybe eight years ago. I, I don't actually remember how long ago it was. But they wanted some interesting stuff recorded, didn't they? Like Ty Seagull had like a toilet explode. It almost hit your eye, too. Uh, well, Ty had a, there was an instrumental bridge in one of his songs, and he decided at some point that he wanted to make his record label pay for a toilet so that he could smash a toilet in that section. And uh, the record label were more than happy to go on Craigslist and find him a toilet. And then we smashed a toilet during the instrumental interlude of the song. And he almost hit your eye, according to the vid that I saw. I, I don't remember. I'm sure, yeah. If there's video evidence of it, then I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to look foolish by saying it didn't happen. No, I have a gift for you. No, I'm not sure if you already have this gift, but I'm giving it to you. Kurt Cobain's journals. Are you aware of his journals, Steve? Uh, I think I was aware that this happened, but I'm not, I've never looked through them. I don't know them. It's your own copy for you. Oh, thank you. Now, if you could please turn to page 227, which is number one. This is Kurt Cobain's journals. Okay. And it has a fax from Steve Albini. I agree. What do you remember about that? Uh, I don't, I don't recall the circumstances. I'm going to guess that this was after... Well, I don't. I I couldn't tell you whether this was before or after we started work on the record. I think it was before you started work on the record. I believe you. So there was the facts. Now on number two, page two two eight, there is some notes for recording that are provided to Steve Albini. Okay. On number two, and it's actually on page two two eight. So I guess we turn over the page, and here are some notes for recording uh i agree and i was curious don't use a hi-hat uh i don't see make sure there is a carpeted cab don't these are kurt's notes for recording and i was just curious if you followed the notes at all when you dealt with kurt cobain uh this looks like a mr producer yeah um i this looks like, just based on some of the microphones that have been recommended, these are microphones that I often used on guitar. Um, what do you it think? Like, it looks like he's transcribing. What you said? Yeah. Is this what you do? I was curious, Steve Albini, because these are Kurt Cobain's journals, a gift to you. And I was curious, what do you think of Kurt's sketches? Is it what happened, actually, when you produced his record? Uh, some of this, yeah. This actually looks like advice to someone who's recording in a non-professional environment, like how to, how to make 
a recording environment a little bit more friendly and how to provide some isolation and uh, miking technique, recommended microphones, miking technique. Yeah. Um, well, this one thing looks odd where it says cut a hole in the bottom of the toms. I don't think I would have suggested that. Um, but the rest of this looks like all like stuff that I might have suggested. Like the specific microphones he listed, the Bayer 160 or Bayer 130, RCA BK5, um, Sheps and Sankin and AKG. Mike's recommended his overheads, not Neumann and not Sennheiser. Yeah, that sounds like me. So it's pretty much your setup then. Well, I mean, it's if you called me and said, could you give me some recommendations for some things to try for recording, I, I would probably give you similar recommendations today. Also, Kurt loved, and if we turn to number three, Big Black. He loved Big Black. Specifically, he liked Big Black. Oh, this is an, uh, a Big Black song called Crack Up, which only appeared on a uh, compilation album, a touch-and-go compilation called God's Favorite Dog. Um, that's a, a deep cut, as they would say, as some people would say. I wouldn't normally say that, but uh, I feel like it's kind of appropriate here. And it's in Kurt's journals for you. Oh, well, thank you. Steve Albini, was it fun recording Nirvana? Did you really light farts on fire? Uh, so there was some fart lighting, but there was also, um, the band got into this thing where they would spill alcohol on things and set it on fire. And one of the things that they spilled alcohol on was Dave Grohl. So there are some Polaroids of Dave Grohl with his ass on fire and things like that. You also loved pranking people. Gene Simmons. Did you phone Gene Simmons? Gene Simmons actually phoned the studio looking for to speak to the band. Um, they had, he'd been given that number by management or the record label or something. And he called the studio and Kurt didn't want to talk to him. And he handed me the phone and said, you know, you can deal with him. And I so I pretended to be Kurt for a while talking to Gene Simmons. And... There, they had a thing set up there where you could record the telephone calls, and so we, we recorded the conversation with Gene Simmons where he admitted basically that he wasn't familiar with Nirvana's music or any of the bands that, that Kurt was sort of friends with. He wasn't familiar with their music. So Gene thought he was talking to... He thought he was talking to Kurt Cobain, but he was talking to me. Yeah, because I one time interviewed Gene Simmons, and he said, oh, I talked to Kurt Cobain. Yeah, sorry to break the spell there, Gene. Did you ever meet Scott Litt? I don't think so. Because he did some Nirvana stuff after you. What was your dealing with Scott Litt? I was just curious. I, I, like I said, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever met him. And I, I certainly don't have any animosity toward him. I just don't think, I don't think I've ever met him. Steve Obini, what is the importance of Rocktober fanzine? Uh, uh, Rocktober is a terrific... Uh, fanzine done by true enthusiasts in the Chicago area. Um, they do a fantastic job of dredging up uh, niche and uh, perverse musical uh, acts of all description. You know, bands with animals in them, bands that uh, that wear costumes, bands that performed with puppets, bands that had. Uh, inanimate members, things like that. Steve Obini, Big Black had a drum machine. Yes, that's true. Did you play with any rap bands that had drum machines? Not that I recall. Did you ever record any drum machines? Oh, yeah. A lot of, quite a few. Of the rap variety. 
I didn't record any rap artists that I. I mean, there, a lot of a lot of bands incorporate elements of hip hop and have rapping parts of their songs, but like strict strictly rap artists, I don't think I've recorded any. Steve Albini, Ruthless Records. Easy E had Ruthless Records, but you had Ruthless too. Yeah, I don't. I I don't know which of us had it first. The Ruthless Records that I was involved in was a sort of a cooperative label that was started by the band The Effigies and Naked Ray Gun. And then uh, in the first round of releases, Big Black was also rolled into the initial round of spate of releases on the Ruthless label. The idea was that if all of us in independently put out records, we would have more trouble getting paid from the distributors, getting um, records noticed by the fanzines and such. Whereas if we sort of banded together and created a, a, a label that could at least pretend to have greater ambition and a larger roster, then we'd be more likely to get paid and get noticed and that sort of thing. But Ruthless versus Ruthless, did you ever get their mail? Uh, only once that I recall, there was a videotape toward toward the very end of the existence of Ruthless Records in Chicago. Um, a videotape was delivered to our post office box that I believe was intended for the other Ruthless Records, but it was it was a, a videotape that was being returned from uh, some television station or something. It and I returned it so that they got it back. So, but only only happened once that I know of. When you were at Abbey Road, was there anything there that you wanted to take home? <laughs> they have a truly magnificent collection of microphones, and yeah, I, I coveted that entire mic closet deeply. Did you get a chance to meet George Martin at all? I have met George Martin. I can do an impression of George Martin if you'd like. Oh, please, go ahead. Okay, uh, I'm going to be George Martin, right? What I'd like you to do is say, excuse me, and get to, to get my attention, and then I'll do my impression of George Martin. Okay, of Sir George Martin. This as long as it doesn't involve a punch to the head. You have nothing to fear. So I'm, I'm going to look this way, and then you get my attention. Excuse me, George Martin. Hello, I'm George Martin. That's it. That's my impression of George Martin. Baboom. Did he actually do that? Yeah. Did he have any idea that you were recording Guy? Uh, I had actually met him once previously, uh, and so I reminded him that I had met him once previously, and then he remembered the circumstances of having met me previously. Um, I, I don't think he knew that I made records. I don't think he had any reason to suspect that I was there in a professional capacity. I have another gift for you, and I'm not sure exactly, Steve, if you like getting gifts in your past, or if you have it, that pansy division, Manada. <laughs> what do you remember about Manada, and do you collect all the records you have made? Uh, I don't, actually, and I don't have a copy of this record. The pansy division, a fantastic punk band, um, and uh, I remember this, I remember the, the, specifically the song Hockey Hair was uh, about... Uh, having a fling or having or d developing a relationship with someone that you're embarrassed to go out with because he has hockey hair. And I thought it was, yeah, truly, truly terrific band. Tired of Ugly Fat. That was the title of a column that I wrote for the music fanzine Matter in the 1980s. Millions of dead... Cops? Cops. Yeah. You were 
weren't too much a fan of that band. No, they were awful. Worse than Asshat? I'm a, I'm, I admire the name Asshat tremendously. I especially admire their logo. I don't know if you're familiar with the Asshat logo, but it's a magnificent drawing of a bowler hat that also looks like an ass with a feather plume coming out of it that also looks like a fart plume. Absolutely magnificent logo. I'm unfamiliar with Asshat's music. But you don't like MDC too much. Only because they're bad. But they're still in the game. They're still in the game. You've got to give them that, right? Okay. Why didn't you like MDC? I'm just curious. They were stupid and bad. Like, who was good? What's the opposite of stupid and bad? I don't... I don't do you want me to name a band that I like? Yeah. What's the opposite of MDC? Uh, I've never really thought about it in those terms, but... Uh, do you want me to name a contemporary band of MDC who were great? Is that a, a band like the X, who we just discussed, actually, would be a really great counterexample. I'm a prick. Okay. Lemmings. TV Waltz. Just... I believe you have just named some songs by my, the first band I was ever in, a band called Just Stucky. Yes, do you remember those songs at all? Uh, what was that era like? I d until you refreshed my memory, no, I, I wouldn't have been able to recall those song titles. Uh, it, uh, we were teenagers. We were learning how to play instruments and learning how to be in a band. Because at that era, Free Range Zine said you were duct taped to a chair? Uh, something about that sounds familiar, but I don't remember. For a review. I don't, oh, I see, I know what happened. You, what you're describing is a, um, a stunt for forced exposure fanzine where I was duct taped to a chair and blindfolded, uh, and then, uh, Byron Coley, who is the, one of the editors of the fanzine, um, played records for me and I was asked to review them while blindfolded and taped to a chair. I think that's what you're talking about. Snoopy, Archie the Cockroach. Uh, Snoopy from the, the Peanuts comic, um, there was a, a musical play about Peanuts that my high school Put on, and I played the role of Snoopy in that high school production. Um, Archie the Cockroach is a character in a Don Marquis book called Archie and Mahitabel about uh, an alley cat and a, a cockroach. The cockroach communicates by hurling himself at the keys of a typewriter and leaving short cryptic messages on the desk of the writer Don Marquis. Did you keep a pet cockroach? No, although there was a, a cockroach in a, a, a large cockroach, a large dead cockroach in a Ziploc bag who was named Archie in an apartment that I lived in in Chicago. Yeah. Who wears, Steve Albini, guitar straps like you? 
Who else wears a guitar strap around the, their waist? Uh, Santiago Durango, the other guitar player in Big Black, adopted the proper guitar strap technique. Um, proper? Yeah. Uh, I, and I seem to recall the Australian band The Mark of Cain. I think their bass player adopted the proper method of guitar strap wearing. Steve Albini, what is the correct way to wear a guitar? Uh, okay, so if this is my guitar, I would attach one end of the guitar strap here to this end of the guitar, then wrap it around my waist here, and then again around my waist, and then attach it to the upper bout of the guitar, and then the guitar would stay in that position no matter where I turned, the guitar would stay in that position. Did you at one time work for a bootlegger? I worked for a company in Chicago that did bootleg t-shirts, not record, not bootleg records, but bootleg t-shirts. Uh, yeah. And I, I made bootleg t-shirts for that company. I printed them. I did artwork for him and he would, the owner of the company would bring me a shirt and then I would copy it either photographically or mechanically. What was popular? At the time, uh, the stray cats were very popular. Uh, David Bowie, the Let's Dance album was at the top of the charts, and there were a lot of David Bowie Let's Dance t-shirts. Um, that Those are the two big ones that I recall. What about Jim's 24-hour Polish sausage? Jim's is a, a Southside institution in Chicago. It's an all-night um, sandwich and hot dog stand, and they sell magnificent Polish sausage. About Jorito sodas, uh, I believe it's pronounced Haritos, and they're um, thank you. Yeah, they're very colorful, uh, sort of nondescript fruitish flavored soda pop sold in uh, Mexican groceries in Chicago, and they're they're brightly colored and very so they add a little spark of gaiety to the kitchen. Steve Obini, what about fluffy coffee? Fluffy coffee is a, a kind of a latte drink that we make at the studio where I work. It's a, a, as our resident coffee expert, Taylor Hales, calls it, it's a very dry latte, meaning it's a lot of milk and not a lot of coffee. And uh, the milk is mixed with maple syrup before it's foamed, so you end up with some delicious maple syrup foam, sort of like a marshmallow, on the top of your coffee drink. And the coffee is mixed with cinnamon so that you have slightly, there's a whiff of exotica about the coffee flavor. That's all. You have a special way to cook potatoes? You mentioned that from the stage when you were playing with shellac. Cooking uh, potatoes. I think somebody asked something about how to cook a potato, and there's a simple way to cook potatoes that, may, that where they're exceptionally delicious, and that's to boil the potatoes in their skins in heavily salted water. And the the heavy salt um, draws some of the moisture out of the potato so the potato is fluffier, uh, as well as seasoning the potato. Interesting. And you also played a roller rink in shellac with baseball uniforms? It wasn't a roller rink, um, but during the strike season, uh, the baseball strike season, I want to say it was 94, um, we put together a, a show in Chicago that, that, that was Six Finger Satellite, Tar, 
MX-80 Sound and Shellac, and all of the bands had uh, custom baseball uniforms made, and we had the U.S. and Canadian national anthems sung in between bands, and it was a whole baseball-themed event. Yeah. It was amazing that you worked with the Silver Apples. Yeah, they were a truly inspirational band for me. I, I was a big admirer, and, and it was enormously gratifying to be asked to work on a Silver Apples record. What about the Cribs? They love drinking, too. Sodas. The Cribs. Uh... You know, on a sort of a normal consumption of sodas basis, yeah, sure. What was it like working with the Cribs? They've done a couple albums with you. Yeah, they're uh, we get along very well. They're, you know, they're brothers, and so they have in a very close rapport within the band. They can s- communicate in an almost sort of uh, telepathic manner. They don't really need to articulate too many things. They tend to understand what each each other want without having to hash things out with arguments or verbalize things too much. Generally speaking, very good-natured people. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Are you doing the Wayne and Garth quote from Wayne's World? And, of course, I'm not worthy meeting Metal Urbane. Ah, okay. Uh, Metal Urbane, again, a truly inspirational early punk band. From you love them, don't you? I think you said, I'm not worthy. Uh, I, I would have, yeah. Uh, I've, I've, I've met Eric Debris uh, from Metal Urbane, but I've, um, I, I've never worked with the, the band proper. But their early records were, you know, real game changers. They really, they, they sort of bridged the gap between the sort of pure noise, electronic element of experimental music and the sort of driving, aggressive punk uh, rock music of the time and and it was a, a at the time it was a unique synthesis jordan from noise floor in vancouver victoria he gave you a nardwar pen do you remember that uh, i i do remember it's a uh, the sort of novelty pen where the bikini comes off as you turn it upside down uh I unfortunately there is not a bikini it's just my hair what where was that? That was in France or something. Yeah, I I do occasional teaching seminars at a recording studio in France called La Fabrique. Um, the program is called Mix with the Masters, and people by will like by subscription will come to these seminars to learn rec- recording techniques from various recording professionals. And I I've done five or six of these seminars. Jordan brought a Nardwar pen. Yeah. Here we are with me at South by Southwest. Everything you're saying is true. Which you kind of said you wouldn't go to before. Yeah. It, I, the reason I'm here was that Kim Deal was going to be here and she needed wanted someone to act as a as her interviewer in a for in a setting where she would be sort of telling her story to the people about, you know, where she was in life and what's up with her new record and that sort of thing. And she asked me to do it, and I, I, I'm constitutionally unable to decline something that Kim Deal asks me to do. I'm just, I'm, I'm putty in her hands. Anything else you'd like to add to the people out there, Steve Albini? No, I guess I'm, I'm slightly envious of the social and political environment in Canada relative to the states at the moment. And... Uh, I, I, like I said, I ad, I admire your public institutions, and um, 
I wish you the best. Well, thank you very much, Steve Albini. Why should people care about Steve Albini? I'm doing my best. I, I don't. I don't have any particular sales pitch for myself. I'll, I'm just trying to earn an honest living and do what I can to uphold my end of the culture. Well, thank you very much, Steve Albini. Keep on rocking in the free world and do do loot do. I agree. That works. You're still listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Big Black from 1986 
with Crack Up. And before that, Steve Albini from Big Black, an interview with Steve Albini. And before that, a couple tracks by The Mentally Ill, 1979 from Chicago. We heard Tumor Boy, Padded Cell, and we began with Gacy's Place. And before that, from France, Metal Urbane with Panique from 1977. Right now, here is on the Nerdward Human Serviette Radio Show, Kill Lugazo by the Dehumanizers from 1986. Kill Lugazo. And we're going to follow that up by Space Child, narrated by David Suzuki. Yes, David Suzuki, Dr. David Suzuki, narrates Space Child. And it contains a whole bunch of vocalists, including Kim Mitchell. Yes, go for a soda, Kim Mitchell. So David Suzuki narrating Space Child from 1981. But we are going to begin with the Dehumanizers and Kill Lou Agazzo from 1986, Seattle, Washington. Seattle, Washington. Let's just reverse this up and start this from the beginning. The Humanizers from Seattle, Washington with Kill Lou Gazzo. Well, that caught the attention of our commentator, Lou Guzzo, and Lou tonight says he thinks a crackdown is in order. I have to ask a question, Gary. Who needs teenage punk rock nightclubs anyway? In fact, who needs punk rockers? If ever the rest of us needed to put our foot down and say enough is enough, the time is now. And the issue is nightclubs for teenagers as well as the punk rockers that they attract. I can't buy the argument that we must provide nightclubs for teenagers because they don't have anything to do. If they can't find anything to do, I think it's because the world of drugs and booze made attractive by punk rock has them mesmerized. Get off! 
a taste of the real life. And because they have a good sense to try something worthwhile. Instead of the ugly hairdos and oops, and ridiculous makeup and costumes of punk rock, the teenagers so inclined might try the real world for change. I think they find better entertainment than skiing, swimming, hiking, climbing, biking, camping, movies, video games, and something as revolutionary as reading and learning. Would you like to live in a city in space? Scientists are predicting that space colonies will be built within the next 20 or 30 years. One day, you may be putting on your spacesuit, getting into a spacecraft, and strapping yourself in. You listen to the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off. The year is 2010. Destination? Space colony in orbit around the planet Earth. Space child, it's only five days for the journey. Little space child, before you reach a brand new city. Space child, well, it's only the beginning for your mom and dad. Little brother, too. You'll be living in a giant wheel in outer space child. 
This is the space city for 10,000 people. Garden schools and factories for 10,000 people. Everything you need is there in outer space. In outer space. And way up The space colonies would be in permanent orbit around our planet, the planet Earth. Earth is one of nine planets in the solar system, and all of these planets orbit around the sun. The names of the planets, starting with the one nearest the sun, are Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Can you remember them? Sometimes it's easier to remember things if you make up sentences using the first letter of each word you're trying to remember. Mercury, M, Mary. Venus, V, vacuumed. Earth, E, every. Mars, M, monster. Jupiter, J, just. Mary vacuumed every monster. Just stand up now, please. Mary vacuumed every monster.
If you looked at our planet from your space colony, you would see that nearly three-quarters of its surface is covered with water. On Earth, the same water circulates between the air and the land day after day, year after year. Every few seconds, millions of tons of water evaporate from the surface of the Earth, and this same water will fall again as rain. If you were shipwrecked on the ocean and you only had salt water to drink, you wouldn't live for very long. Your body washes out any extra salt it takes in, and if necessary, it will take water from your body tissues to do this. This makes you even more thirsty. Eventually, you would die. Although people can't drink salt water, everyone needs some salt in their diet. In the past, salt has been needed so badly that it has been traded for gold. Today, in places like San Francisco, Salt is obtained by putting seawater into ponds and using the heat of the sun to evaporate away the water. So water evaporated, there's no trace of water. 
Today, the heat of the sun is used to obtain salt from the oceans. In the future, solar energy will become more and more important. All the energy needed in space colonies will be supplied by solar power cells, and one of the functions of space colonies will be to build solar power satellites to supply energy to Earth. Solar energy is a renewable form of energy. Can you think of another renewable energy source? One tremendous advantage to using wind power and solar power is that they don't add to pollution.
On our planet Earth, we have a very serious pollution problem. In space colonies, energy supplies will be pollution-free and waste products will be recycled. The space colonies will be self-sufficient and food will be grown to feed all 10,000 people living there. Crops will be planted in soil which is brought from the moon and with engineers controlling the weather, there will never be any problems with frost, drought or floods. It's almost certain that one of the crops that will be grown is wheat. It would be interesting to know how similar farming methods in space will be to those used on Earth. And that was David Suzuki narrating a bit of Space Child. Yes, I faded out wheat. However, you did hear Evolution of Pollution with guest vocals by Kim Mitchell. Go for a soda, Kim Mitchell. Before that, wind power, salt, water cycle, planets, and space child. Again, this is from Space Child. David Suzuki narrates Space Child from 1981 on Elma Combo Records. Right now, to end the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, here is The Earthquake on a great spoken word record from 1969 by Graydon Moore, recorded in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, by Robin Spurgeon and G. Moore. Great and more, music by Leo Jung, The Earthquake, a poem from 1969 in Vancouver, Canada. On the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. Mother Earth was upset. She had been melancholy too long. So she wet herself out of revenge. Without warning, she entered a paroxysm of gelatin twisting and breaking apart. The demons she created were weather-wise, making the most of a little sun. With the air so thick, electricity crackled like spurting flames. The demons played Santa Claus for a few years and did crazy things with their flicking tongues to the mantle deep in the earth, under his city. Out on Georgia Street, Timber Beckett found himself naked. He'd no sooner crossed Burrard northbound for Vancouver's art gallery, which was two blocks further north on Georgia, when here came Mother Earth chucking out her guts. The first brutal shock slamming into a city, slamming his eyes shut. He shrieked once, bit off his lower lip, cut off consciousness. It fell to the ground, made a wet thud. The mantle, meanwhile, turned to madness, tensed like steel, Quite hot it became, ready to bite. It bent snapping in two ways at once, writhing in quick flicks. With a hideous groan, the mantle relieved itself in a strange, 
banshee wailing? Or was it his soul screaming? Time and thought mattered little for Timber. Already, within a few quick jerks of time, buildings of his city had begun to sway lustily in wider and wider circles. Pretty soon they were taking off by the roots and flying through the air. Behold, the skyscrapers began to disintegrate, coming down in a hail of death. Bodies flailing the air, down through the mazy air in nightmare contortions of slow-moving, screaming they came to rest on Mother Earth. Others were already silent tacky-tacky. Showers of concrete followed, with glass and oak desks following miraculously like rain. And the rain seemed to go on for a long time until it didn't matter too much, much. In the remote distance was a church bell tolling. Ta-tong, tong, ta-tong, tong. For there was little mercy in the air now. Nothing there was. Mercy, no, no. On the ground, nor in the sea. The mountains seemed odd, moving sideways across the harbor. Timber saw the mountains, leaping up and down across the harbor like eager puppies. And of all incredible things, he smiled. The earthquake had lasted for about 35 to 40 seconds. But too bad, it was increasing strength. In Burrard Inlet, which is the main harbor basin of Vancouver, the seafloor was fornicating furiously, agitating the sea into mud, stirring dark, ugly horrors of imagination from the sea where the tide was quickly running out. The motion grew into giant waves that began to slosh back and forth in the harbor basin. One, two, three, four, Five, until suddenly they were washing over the sides of the rusty freighter, moored in the harbor, punching in its steel-plated hull in a single wallop. With a dissonant clunk, Timber's distant church bell stopped tolling. Seventy-five seconds. Time enough for him to fall in love. In panic, Timber shrank away from a sudden apparition that loomed up of an instant in his mind. A full 20 stories high, it was the Vancouver Hotel on the other side of the intersection. And opposite that was the 20-story Burrard building made of glass. They were both right upon the intersection where he stood rooted like a watermelon man with his finger up his past. And if they collapsed, he was in imminent danger of being fangled. In panic, Timber bolted from the spot. He ran angleways across the intersection, away from the beasties in 
into the open lot of a British-American service station. But before he could go 16 paces, he found himself incredibly often isolated on a piece of concrete. The street having finally broken apart by the tight violence of the quake, and the concrete pan rocked and rolled in great delight, battered as it were by the crashing waves of a furious, dark green Hindu-driven sea. The shocks, the shocks, they hammered his feet, tried to knock him flying. And everywhere he looked were giant chasms. He seemed surrounded by an army of giant clams, snapping their mighty jaws open and shut. Their messages floated the air like primordial bellows of a god's horn. He couldn't describe it, only staggered in the noise, the groaning, clattering noise. Pain, yes, he teetered on the very brink of his diminishing island of significance, and a chasm opened right before his very eyes. Yes, yes, hardly five feet away. It split across the tarmac of the BA service station and ripped the slope open all the way down to Pender Street. As he watched dumbly, a young lady who had been racing blindly toward him up the hill, leaping dangerously from one bouncing tan to the next, ran headlong over the opening brink. She plummeted, her white legs making slow, long, easy turns of a windmill tumbling down into the pits of hell. With a horrendous supernatural burp, the chasm swallowed the service station too, pumps and all. Within seconds, Timber could hear the sound of rock chewing. And so, he forgot his girlfriend, Evelyn. He forgot his art and makeshift personality. He forgot how to run, how to struggle, his mind blank, all blank by the earthquake. All my poor boy could do was fight for consciousness. On the concrete, two minutes. From far field, a hissing came at him. With dull horror, he intuits it is either the Vancouver Hotel or the Burrard Building in the process of collapsing. He couldn't even turn around for a look. Paralyzed, he didn't dare move. Even one step might throw him off the pan. A backwash of dust raised at ground level toward him until it billowed up into his eyes, his ears, his nose, 
mouth. He put his hands over his face, coughing. He couldn't breathe. He was being submerged, surely and precisely. The dust seemed like a fire, which burned into his mouth and eyes to ooze along greased telephone cables into his seared brain. He stood with his feet braced against the floor of the world, while debris from the falling rocks washed onto his pan and threatened to disbar him. His feet there literally grew into roots. If Timber had had consciousness now, he would have seen himself transcending into a mighty bronze colossus, standing tall rooted against time, with his huge legs thrust 20 centuries apart as they bestrided all opposition. All powerful was he in his brute struggle just to stay alive. quake was um, two and a half minutes. Now it began to change. As in the dream fantasy, abruptly the world fell apart into a sweet, silent, and sinister, eerie calm. In this weird world of strength, buildings and trees shifted about most eerily back and forth silence all around him. He felt somehow strangely enwombed by this. Except for the uncanny rhythmical shifting of his environment, everything about the earthquake seemed over. Oh, there were maybe one or two definitive chinks of swallowing rocks galling themselves. But the last orgiastic moan had faded away, up into the mountains, across the harbor, booming finally on into the distant chasm of his soul. Gone. Bad breath? And ether salts? Sulfur. After this, it took Timber a few seconds to adjust to the new, creepy direction of his catastrophe. He could see now the undulations sweep along the street, wave after wave, lifting and lowering him gently as they caroomed underfoot passive. Like many of Vancouver's proud buildings whose undercarriages had been scarred in the first violence, trees and buildings continued to pitch with the ripple's motion. The ripples seemed to spread in waves from a center of consciousness outward until finally they were knocking at the door of the Lionsgate Suspenson Bridge which had remained closed to the bitter last. 
In despair, the bridge tried to escape, dancing over the first narrows. It suddenly rose with a last sad hissing sigh. And along unfurling, first its towers went, then its body falling with the sensuousness of a serpent into the foaming maelstrom below. The aftershock fled on into the North Shore mountains. Meanwhile, the rippling city stopped. The laughter died away. A last bored chuckle. A last flutter of broken concrete falling onto broken bodies. Silence. No screams. No sounds. No motion. The more it snows, tiddly-pum, the more it ho-hum. Bother. Timber lays still for a few minutes, finds his feet, which he uh, attaches to his mind, stands, shakes himself, free of the debris, sees his city uncomprehendingly. Nothing is the same. The whole world is weirdly insane. The only thing fair about it is a clock on a billboard a measly 50 yards back. It is still there, honor bound for duty. It says precisely 17 minutes and 32 seconds after four o'clock. disquieting kind of silence made up of vaguely shifting shapes that grope the dazed ruts of their minds for consciousness. And they seem to move as if in cobwebs or shock possibly. Bodies, robed figures bent like priests who feel and stumble about blindly in the dust while their minds are temporarily, somewhere else. And then, somehow, some genes rapidly turning over, maybe. Anyway, these shapes begin to readjust themselves to the surprise that they are still alive. One by one, as Timber stands back and reels in smoky confusion, these beings that move about like bent priests and nuns' hoods begin to return from limbo shock state. Pain of catastrophe is heard. And now are heard the first hesitant, testing, hysterical, 
and utterly surviving in shrieks of the survivors and 